Well, hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. So last week, we took a short road trip to Cranbrook, B.C., staying at the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. It's a beautiful resort located about five minutes outside of Cranbrook. And it was there that I met up with Sophie Pierre. She's a former chief of the Occam First Nation and board chair of the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. Now, in case you didn't know, the St. Eugene Resort was once a residential school, of which Sophie was a former student. So I had a fascinating conversation with her about the First Nations in the area and the history behind the St. Eugene Resort and how it came to be what it is today. So we'll play that conversation for you in a few minutes. We also visited the Cranbrook History Centre and did one of their three historic railway tours, the Trans-Canada. Our tour guide was Natalie Lim Picard, Programming Coordinator for the Cranbrook History Centre. And we had a great conversation with her as well about the history of Cranbrook and visiting the centre itself. So we'll play that for you a bit later. But as I mentioned, we're going to begin our podcast with a conversation we had with Sophie Pierre. She's a former chief of the Occam First Nation and board chair of the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. Now, in case you didn't know, the St. Eugene Resort was once a residential school of which Sophie was a former student. So here's Sophie's story and the history behind the St. Eugene Resort and how it came to be what it is today. This is such a fascinating uh, history behind this building and this area. Let's go back 100 plus years and just tell me the story of the First Nations in the area, what life was like, and then, you know, how this building transformed. Sure. Yes, be happy, happy to do that. Well, this, uh, the, this is the homelands of the Ktunaka Nation, Ktunaka people. Ktunaka have been here since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our history goes back uh, thousands of years. And we are, um, as a Kutunaka people, we have a language isolate. Uh, we are the only indigenous group that speaks Kutunaka language. And we have our place names and, you know, we know, we know our homelands um, primarily because we have our place names and our history around that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the resort and the, um, the mission, the, this all started um, in the mid-1800s with the arrival of the missionaries. So, yeah, in the mid-1800s, of course, it was the missionaries, um, along with uh, the traders and, like, the fur, fur traders and the other explorers as they're coming through. Um, David Thompson came through this region, as did other explorers. But uh, it was the Jesuits who um, created the mission mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And um, they built up uh, a church and a hospital. And as the um, colonization moved west, Mm -hmm. um, the Indian reserves were being created. 1884 was when our reserves were being created. Ktunaka are in the Rocky Mountain Trench on both sides of the border of what's today the United States and Canada. We have Ktunaka in Montana, Idaho, and Washington State as well as in Southeast British Columbia. And our, our homelands uh, go from the Big Bend of the Columbia, we follow the Columbia River, mm-hmm. the Big Bend of the Columbia in the north, mm-hmm. along 
a place called Yarkleke, along what is now known as the Arrow Lakes area, down into Idaho and um, down south to uh, south of Missoula, Montana. Oh wow! That's that is the homelands of the Tunaha, mm-hmm. and we know our our homelands because those are where we have place names and we have stories and we know we have a creation story actually that that talks about this whole water system and um, the the river system with the the Kootenai and the Columbia rivers. So this is our homelands, and um, so with with the arrival of the the missionaries and then behind them came the settlers. The reservations were created, and one of the reservations, my own, which is now Akam, it was known as the St. Mary's Indian Reserve. It's now Akam, mm-hmm. and um, so it was created, um, or the the mission, the the reserve was uh, set aside in 1884. But the majority of the people, they did not live like right in this area. In fact. The area where our people did live, um, and and our people were nomadic, so we used our entire homelands. Mm-hmm. But there were places where you came to specifically at different times of the year or at different years. Was the area that is now Cranbrook, that was called Alkiskaklet, and it's because it's a very nice spot. It's right in between two creeks, mm-hmm. and that's where the Alkis that means two. So it's it's that area between the two creeks, and um, the settlers came in and you know recognized that that was a choice piece of land, and of course, the reserves were being created, and um, you know so we get the lands that, you know, quite frankly, settlers didn't want, mm-hmm. and that's that's where our reserve is now. Um, so the mission was was built. It's they started to build it around 1850, 1860, and um, in 18, or 1894, the um, Moye mines were, were being, mm-hmm. quote, discovered. The revenue from the, that, mount, that mine, mm-hmm. um, given to the church, given to Father Kokla, and he built the church that we have here. Okay. Uh, and it was opened in 1897, and it actually has stained glass that was shipped here from Italy. Oh my gosh. So it is a fabulous, fabulous little church. The mission um, had had started to be built around, and the original hospital, St. Eugene Hospital, was built down here, and then it was moved into Cranbrook okay. after it, uh, yeah, uh, when the the town of Cranbrook was was being developed, mm-hmm. the the hospital was moved up there. This particular building that we're sitting in right now, this was started in 1910, and it opened as a Industrial school, which is you know the, what was what the the residential schools were called at the time. This particular building opened in 1912, and it stayed as a residential school until 1970. Really, that long, hey? Yes. And I was here um, as a student from 1956 till 1965. That's unbelievable. I know it seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> sitting I would, in here now that it's I know, would it's think so. But you know, for us. It's um, this. This is what we wanted to do with this building. Um, it, it's the the story behind what we did and why we did it is a very important story. And mm-hmm. I think that that's partly why you're here. You yeah. To hear that story. The school um, ran from 1912 to 1970 as a residential school, yeah. as an industrial school, and then residential school. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the at that point. 
it was run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, were the priests and the brothers here, and the Sisters of Charity. Now, the um, when I, I was here, um, I came in as a student in 1956. I was six years old, and I stayed here till 1965. And so I pretty much grew up here. There were, at the time that I was here, there were about 150 students, um, most of, you know, most years, and it was pretty evenly split between boys and girls, mm -hmm. 75 boys, 75 girls, and um, so we had kind of three three sections. We had the juniors, um, intermediates, and seniors that went up to grade eight. The, the classes went up to grade eight, so from grade one to grade eight mm. is, uh, was the schooling that I got here. Um, when this first opened as a hotel, what, what was going on in your mind as well, a former student? I, I, I mean, you must have had all kinds of yeah. things going through your head. Actually, I, I wrote a piece for the um, Healing Foundation, um, and I, that's where I start, is that I'm, I'm standing on the front steps, but I'm standing there as a grandmother watching my granddaughter cut the ribbon, help cut the ribbon with our Delta Hotels um, senior manager like yeah they're, they're here isn't that something the and um, you know I talk about how I looked across looked down the the alley of trees and down you know that that walkway and thought about you know all those those years ago yeah when I um, yeah when I walked up that same walkway you know as a little six-year-old and and you know quite frankly at the time I was quite excited because my mother told me I was going to school and she bought me some new clothes and new shoes and you know so I was I was pretty excited but as we're getting closer and and I see the nun standing at the top of the steps and and then I realize what's really happening here mm. is yeah yeah and then and then I watch my mother leave and that was yeah that that was really hard oh, and there were and then of course there are a lot of other kids around and, yeah. and they're you know, all the kids are crying, and 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 I think um, you know a, a real uh, difficult part is watching the brothers and sisters being separated. You know, the, so the boys had to go one way, and the girls the other way. And then through the whole time, the ten months that we're here, um, that you can't speak to your your siblings. In my case, I'm an only child, so that mm -hmm. that wasn't you know something that that I lived through. But I know what it was like because my best friend. Um, she had brothers, and 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 even for when we're juniors, you know, when you see the kids my age, um, couldn't interact with their, you know, like if they're if they're hurt, and yeah. their, their older sister tried to, or an older cousin tried to, yeah, you know, console the child. That was not that was a no no. Like you would be quite severely punished for that. You just you you stayed within. Like that's why I mentioned that there yeah. were three sections: junior, intermediate, yeah. senior. So the, the juniors, we looked after each other, as opposed to even if you had an older sister. They're the original steps. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've been fixed up. Yeah, them. but obviously, <laughs> they, so oh, they're yeah, safe but to walk them. But, but they're, yeah, that's, that's the way the steps have always been. We didn't change that part of the building. That's great. I'm glad you didn't. Because like I said, when, when we first, um, before we started this, um, when we were chatting, I couldn't help but think how many children's, Yes. footsteps were going up the yeah. steps for the yeah. first time and what was going on in their minds and yeah. I mean you can't help but think that at least I can't when, yeah. you, when you first well, arrive yeah, here of course. right yeah yeah. Yes. yeah yeah and you know that's the thing is that we we're not um, we're not hiding this we're not we're not trying to change the the, the history the the, the, the uh, this building was a residential school yeah and the his Canada's history in terms of 
of its history with Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to recognize that and, and, and accept the truth. You know, you hear a lot about people are always talking about reconciliation. You're not going to have reconciliation if you don't first deal with the truth. Now, that's what we've built here. This is the truth. This was a former residential school. Mm-hmm. And it was our choice as Indigenous people to take this back, to yeah. reclaim this, and then to turn it into something positive so that people will never forget residential school, but they will also recognize that they're not going to keep us down there as victims forever. No, yeah, it's a great way We can it. take this back, and we have, yeah. and we've created a good future for you know, the, the generations to come. That was the words of our elder. When we were in a meeting and we were talking about how much we had lost, this was in the 70s, and uh, we were talking about, we're wanting to revive, revitalize the Ktunaha language, as I meant, that's why I mentioned it's an isolate. Mm-hmm. If the Ktunaha language is lost, it's lost to the planet. We lose the Ktunaha language, it's gone forever. Yeah. So we were talking about that and we were realizing that we had to do something because we were losing our elders mm-hmm. we were losing our language speakers so we were talking about that and all of us were blaming this place and finally mary paul said look at if you think you lost so much in that building go back in there and get it this was already becoming very decrepit mm-hmm. it was it had been shut down mm-hmm. you know by the time she told us this it had been shut down for you know at least a half a dozen years you know it was getting just more and more deteriorated to the point where in the 90s we realized that if we were going to do something with the building we had to do it then we and so we started putting together our our plans um we knew that we needed to build something that was going to become self-sufficient um you know we had a lot of ideas people wanted to, you know thinking about keeping it as a school or mm-hmm. keeping it as a some kind of health facility or like some social um, use for it Mm -hmm. but that we knew uh, would always demand support from government and we're not like that's not what we wanted to do yeah so that's why we uh, we we just took this giant (laughs) leap and I recall when we were going around with our business plan like you know some of the people that that we talked to they would say a former res- like who would want to stay in a former <laughs> residential school like seriously plus we're off the beaten track yeah you know we're not on any major highway yeah um we do have an airport you know that's very close to us here mm-hmm. um but you know the, the it was it was those words of our outer and i think that as we started to plan this we spent two years of what i call internal marketing we spent two years talking with our people mm-hmm. about what we would do with this building. We had those, you know, particularly of my generation, who wanted to just knock it down, yeah. you know, get it off the face of the earth because they were hurt so bad. Mm. But we had more people who were saying, we can make it into something positive. It's a building. It's actually quite an impressive building. It is actually. It, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. And we could do something with it. and. And we could make it so that we'll, nobody will ever, I mean, if we knock it down, then we'll, we'll, get to, we'll come to a, play, a time when generations will have no recollection. Where is the, what, what we've done here? You come here and it's, it's a beautiful hotel, yes. but it has a history. 
and you know like all old buildings you know people are interested in, in history yeah and again this is where we we always will tell the truth of what happened with yeah you've done a nice I use the word monument um, when we mm -hmm. were chatting previously um, you've done a nice job of balancing it because um, there's little reminders mm -hmm. there's images there's photos there's you know, I mean, the brick wall is yep. definitely a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, but it's also a place where you don't want to, you know, bring people down. And like, you yes. want people come yes. here for weddings and celebrations. Yeah. And they have, you have the beautiful golf course. And it is yeah. surrounded by beautiful land now. Um, yes. Like I say, you've done a great job. It is beautiful. The rooms are great. You have a beautiful golf course. What do you think the past students that are no longer with us here are thinking about this place? Looking well, down. I mean, I, I went to school with a lot of them who died very young. And um, I've, I'm, I believe that had they been in my position, they would have done the same thing. They would have wanted to take it back. They would not have, you know, I, I know the spirit of, of all those beautiful children, and they would not have been wanted to be beaten down and, and seen as some kind of victim. Yeah. They would have wanted to take it back too, because that's what we've done. You yeah, know, we've just we've taken it back. Yeah, and it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Former Chief Sophie Pierre of the Occam First Nation, now board chair for the Saint Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. SaintEugene.ca is the website. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. <laughs>
and uh, it continues to grow. Yeah. Uh, I would like to mention that uh, before Colonel Baker arrived in Cranbrook and uh, the town grew um, um, based on the railway, there were the Tanaha who were living in this mm -hmm. territory. And uh, they were living here, uh, particularly the St. Mary's Band, um, Akam, um, for you know tens of thousands of years. And this land is what they used, particularly where Cranbrook is today, for uh, the grazing of their animals. And uh, when the railway came, it was a huge disruption in the way of life that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it is a fascinating history. There's a lot of things you can see here at the Cranbrook History Center. Um, I, I don't want to call it a, a railway museum because <laughs> there's not, more to no. it. That's a big part of it, which we'll discuss, mm -hmm. but it is more than a railway museum because some people will call it that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, well, it's tricky, uh, particularly because our name used to <laughs> include railway in it, but we've since changed our name to reflect the larger goals of the museum, and we really want to serve our community. Mm -hmm. So we want to prioritize telling the stories, the history that is based in Cranbrook and and sometimes that can be, you know, natural history. It can be the history of logging in the area, mining, mm -hmm. uh, the great elephant hunt of 1926 when an escaped elephant uh, <laughs> ran around town for a, a couple months. Um, and then we also have paleontology. Um, and this is something that really attracts uh, the youngsters because we've got a really great collection of trilobite fossils, a couple uh, dinosaur feet, uh, footsteps, and... Uh, and it speaks to a much longer history in Cranbrook, you know, 350 million years ago, we were all underwater and yeah. it was just little trilobites crawling <laughs> on, on what we now call home. When you drive down this main road here, you mm -hmm. see a statue of an elephant. Is that what that refers yes. to? <laughs> yeah, that's Cranbrook Ed. He's, uh, he's a, a very popular figure. He was the unofficial mascot of the Cranbrook Autumn Fair in 1926 because uh, when the circus came to town, uh -huh. he got loose. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and uh, it took quite actually um, a bit of knowledge, particularly from the local Tanaha, to chalk him down because they really? knew the land so well. Yeah. That's amazing. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about the railway tours you have here. There's three main uh, tours that you can mm -hmm. do. Uh, you can, obviously, you can go online, uh, Cranbrook History Center, to, to get more information on times and things like that. But just run through basically what the three tours are. Yeah, we try to have three tours that kind of talk about rail history in different ways so mm -hmm. that we can attract, you know, all the different uh, interests that people have as they come into the museum. We have a kind of general tour to start off. Our comparative tour looks at trains from across different eras mm -hmm. in the 20th century in Canada. And it also looks across class to kind of paint a picture of how rail travel changed in Canada, especially as society was changing yeah. and how that experience affected particularly train travel. Uh, our second tour is the Trans Canada Limited. Like the comparative, it's also 45 minutes. And that's actually a series of 10 train cars that originally traveled together from 1919 until 1931 that we painstakingly reassembled into that original format so we could tell the story of this train. It was called the Millionaire's Express. We look at what this luxury train looked like for travelers and the work of the people who uh, were employed by the CPR to make it possible for the travelers to experience mm -hmm. that millionaire lifestyle. <laughs> Um, so those are our first two tier tours. Our third tour, the Sioux Spokane, 
hits closest to home. It was a train that ran through Cranbrook every day, uh, 1907 until 1914. It's a set of wooden cars, so it really gets us a deep look at you know rail history. How did rail travel look you know over a hundred years ago, uh -huh. and why were these cars so important for our town and for connecting our town really with the world? Yeah. Well, we did do the Trans Canada tour. It was amazing. Like I'm a rail person, so obviously I'm going to say that. But you learn a lot about, like you say, not just rail travel in Canada and then the millionaires train and how the rich and and not necessarily famous, but but how they travel, mm -hmm. but also the workers on board and the things that are going on. Mm -hmm. um, it really is a fascinating um, tour. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that one thing that we always like to keep in mind is that rail history is Canadian history. Yeah. Rail history is social history, it's labor history, it's immigration history. And when you really look at Canada, it, you know, we couldn't tell the stories of Canadians without telling the stories of the railways, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Yeah, and I think for, for better, it really was, like mm -hmm. you were mentioning, and this is what you learned part of the tour, it's the fastest, at that time, the mm -hmm. fastest way to get across the continent. It mm -hmm. was faster than the rail system in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an impressive feat considering <laughs> uh, the little competition I think Canada and U.S. always has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship between, and you mentioned, mentioned the Indigenous uh, peoples around here, what's the relationship between the History Centre and the Indigenous people now? Like, do you really have a, are you kind of partners in, in how the history is told? So the Tanaha have an amazing interpretive centre at the St. Eugene Resort, mm -hmm. uh, just a 15-minute drive from Cranbrook, that they tell their story and, you know, over 10,000 years of history, well up into the 20th century, dealing with residential schools. St. Eugene used to be mm -hmm. um, Indian residential school in this area. And uh, we're fortunate to have had, uh, you know, uh, Tanaha speakers come for different events that we have and share uh, diff their different stories, such as the origin story. Uh, and it's a partnership that we're always looking to mm -hmm. to continue to build up on and uh, making sure that we know who's sto the stories that we're telling and, and knowing the stories that... Uh, that they themselves are telling in, mm -hmm. in, in their own way. Tell us about some of the programs, like for a, a visit here, you mentioned the, the rail tours, they're about 45 mm -hmm. minutes long, that's part of it. You mm -hmm. can tour the, the rest of the center. Mm -hmm. How long are you, are you, are you asking people to, to, to really uh, soak in everything that's here? How long will that take? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, you know, it really depends if you're a reader. Uh, there, <laughs> there's quite a great a number of panels for people who really want to kind of soak in everything. Uh, we also know that, especially with our paleontology collection, we have a model train actually display at the at the back of the museum, which is really popular with the kids. Mm -hmm. uh, so with the number of kids that come in, we've introduced scavenger hunt programs as well as kind of photo searches, uh, I spy style games around the museum that kids really enjoy. And actually, in addition to the three tours that we offer, mm -hmm. we have a supplementary, what we call the toddler tour, okay. because... Uh, Sometimes kids just want to look. They don't want to listen to, <laughs> to all the history we want to talk about. And so for toddler tours, it, we really try and hone in on, on the trains that excite toddlers the most, yeah. you know, the caboose, the engine, and, and get them inside and, and seeing what life was like on those. Yeah, yeah so you got something for everybody. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a great uh, way to spend the day in Cranbrook. Mm -hmm. Anything I missed you want, you want to add? Um, in the summer, for anyone who's looking to spend... Uh, uh, summer weekend in Cranbrook, uh, we always offer walking tours. So oh, okay. it's something that's additionally done just in the summer. Mm -hmm. We delve into downtown Cranbrook history. This year we're doing both a downtown and a house history tour. We're always looking to develop new tours. And so if you're just coming to the museum, regardless of the season, 
take a look at our website, look at our events page, yeah. and see if you can tap into any other part of uh, local history while you're here. And you can see Ed the Elephant. You can see Ed the Elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Lim Picard is a programming coordinator with the Cranbrook History Center. The website, as she mentioned, cranbrookhistorycenter.com. It was a great tour. Um, I learned so much. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you. And that is this week's Informed Traveler podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveler radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website at theinformedtraveler.ca. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. And if you want to drop me a line, my email is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. Or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.